It's good. I don't know if, if you've ever, if you're a, a veteran or you've been around veterans and those guys get together, you know, there's this camaraderie. And I feel like I have that with, with, with people that are in the ministry trenches with us, particularly in student ministry. And we have several pastors, uh, lead pastors or senior pastors here. And then we have a lot of, a lot of your lay workers, your volunteers, or your, and we have guys here that are part-time, guys that are full-time. And, but we're all committed to student ministry. That, that's the focus this weekend. And so we know why we're here. We know what, what this is about. And so I'm going to dive right into Scripture. Turn, if you would, 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I love reading. Uh, I love reading both of Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus because there's so much practical stuff in there um, from, from Paul to this to this. He's, a, he's young, but I think Timothy, m- most, most guys think Timothy's probably in his 30s, probably in his mid-30s, because Paul picks him up on a missionary journey when Paul's estimated to be around 50, and this is about 15 years later, and Tim, if Timothy was in his early 20s when, when he first started traveling with Paul, or even his late teens, he's probably in his 30s. So when he's being referred to as a young man, and in and, and, and the text that we're looking at tonight, is that, that really well-known verse where Paul tells him not to let anybody look down on him because of his youth. You're talking about a guy that, that is in his, you know, he's, he's not in his teenage years. He's not even in his early 20s. And so um, there's a lot for all of us here in terms of practical ministry challenge from Paul's words to Timothy, particularly in chapter 4. And here's why. Because in this chapter, and particularly the the text that we're going to focus on, which are verses 6 through 16, there are 12 imperatives that Paul gives to Timothy. An imperative is a command or a word of instruction that that if when we when we read an imperative and we respond to that, that's an act of obedience. So a command or a word of instruction. There's 12 imperatives that Paul gives to Timothy. We're going to look at those. We're going to look at then how they apply to us, and we're going to just kind of walk through the text. Um, at, at the end of um, the, the sermon and kind of look at how he ties these things together because he kind of condenses those 12 imperatives into about five or six main thoughts. And so what we'll walk away with, hopefully, what I've walked away with from, from study and preparation of this text is a lot of just practical areas in my life that I need to practically make some adjustments that I need to do a better job, areas that, that I realize, okay, this is a really good text for me to kind of gauge where I am in my walk with the Lord. A little context, a background context to, to the book of uh, this letter that Paul's written to Timothy. Timothy was pastoring in a place called Ephesus. Ephesus was one of, there's two cities that were known to just be really, really foul, carnal, uh, particularly sexually vile um, in, in, in uh, the time of the early church. One was Ephesus, one was Corinth. And so like when you read through Corinthians, um, you'll see in the two letters that we have to the Corinthians, a lot of things that address like, like cultural or, or local issues. Same thing when you read through Ephesians and the, the church at Ephesus was facing a lot of just really, really carnal um, ideology and things like that. And so the, the background is that Timothy's this young pastor in this really foul, vile city that is also sort of a philosophical epicenter. So it's kind of like if Las Vegas, Nevada met UC, UC Berkeley. Y- y'all tracking with me? Or really any, any, uni- any modern university um, in the West. 
um, as far as philosophy, ideology, things like that. Like when, when you're living in a culture where the, the murder of babies is allowed for four decades and then all of a sudden the reality of what's happening there is being exposed right before our very eyes and people are going, eh, not a big deal. That's, that's Ephesus. That's, that's Ephesus. So, so there's a lot of cultural overlap between what's going on there and what's going on here. Also, they worshipped a goddess who was literally, the, the, the act of worship was often celebrated uh, through sex acts. And so you had temple prostitution. And so that was the, the climate that Timothy was ministering in. And so with that kind of context, it helps us understand a little bit the aggressive nature that Paul's going to come at him with. And so as we go into the text, what you're going to hear is this sort of aggressive charge, this command, this aggressive teaching um, leveled or aimed at Timothy. So I'm going to read the whole chapter, then we're going to zoom in on verses 6 through 16. So let's start uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings teachings of demons uh, through the uh, through the insincerity of liars who whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer if you put these things before the brothers You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect, neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Lord, I pray the blessing of the reading of your word, the explanation of your word, the hearing of your word. I pray that you would, by your spirit, apply it to our lives for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's, let's walk through the text and unpack these 12 imperatives, these 12 commands that are given to Timothy. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, to uh, assume that all of us, like I said earlier, are in, uh, committed to student ministry, at least for a season. And so there's a couple of ways to view this. If you're here and you're a lay worker, a lay leader, you, you, you lead a small group, you teach a Sunday school class, you're a discipleship group leader, something like that, there's a lot that will apply to you as someone who leads if you're here as a student pastor, which is a pastor, or as a senior pastor, which is a pastor, um, then there's a lot of pastoral um, sort of challenge that's given to Timothy that would then apply to us. But then also, if you're a lay leader or a bivocational guy, this also is, is going to help you understand the role 
that your student pastor plays in the lives of those students and how you can better help him meet that goal. So you can look at these qualifications and say, I want to help my pastor do this better. I want to help my student pastor do this better. How can I be an asset, not a hindrance? And so this is, this is a, a, a vibrant text for all of us, regardless of where we are, and particularly in the way that we're to minister. So let's walk through these 12 imperatives first. And the first one is in verse 6. The, the command that he's given Timothy in verse 6 is to expose error. One of the tasks that we have in ministering to students is to expose error. You know, and I know, that kids on a daily basis are, are under this volume of information. It's like a constant information overload. And it blows my mind how many times I'll talk to a student and think, man, that student really loves the Lord. That student loves Jesus. That student is passionate about the gospel. That student is passionate about reaching their friends with the gospel. And then you go into their social media and start looking at things they're saying, things they're posting, things they're, they're, you know, they're retweeting or, 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 or liking on Facebook. And you go, what, where's the disconnect here? And what it is is that there's oftentimes a responsibility placed on us to expose error that maybe is not being exposed in the home. Or maybe it's just simply not being exposed any other place except from the pastor or the small group leader. It's our responsibility to expose error. So, so he says in verse 6 that they're to expose error, particularly what he's talking about here is false teaching. He says, put these things before the brothers. So he's talking about believers. When you instruct believers, put these things before them. And he's, he's referencing those first five verses where he lays out sort of some, some false teaching, some heresies that need, need to be addressed. He's saying, put these things in front of your hearers, the brothers, those you're discipling. Make it clear to them, this is not okay. This is false teaching. So identify false teaching. Paul, we'll, we'll, we'll look at this in the last session tomorrow, he would name people. Today, if you name people, folks will say stuff like, um, we don't need to be judgmental. No, like, we need to expose error. When someone is teaching heresy and our sheep are hearing that, we need to make sure they understand that there's error in that teaching. So the responsibility to expose error. Now, uh, I think there's, there's kind of two categories that we need to look to expose this. One is from within the church. That would be false teaching. So in the church, like if you, for instance, if you see that you've you got a student that's reading something, and you go, oh, okay, like I know for a fact, year, uh, a few years ago, the, the, it was a big, a big deal where, uh, what was the guy's name? It's like everybody's favorite heretic, um, Rob Bell. Rob Bell, um, <laughs> uh, Rob Bell had written, you know, he'd written a book or two, and they were really good, and, and, and I remember reading one of them, the first one, or like, or maybe it wasn't a book, I'd read some sermon manuscripts he had done. I was like, this guy's really good, and I listened to him, he's really engaging. Uh, and then he writes this book where he, uh, where he questions, he says the virgin birth is like completely unnecessary. Like, yeah, you don't have to believe the virgin birth. It's no big deal. He said Christian doctrine is like a brick wall. And if you take out a brick here or a brick there, the wall will still stand. Well, it's not like a brick wall. It's like Jesus. And you can't remove any part of Jesus from any part of anything and still be called faithful to the scripture. And so, but I remember, I remember we started speaking out against that. And we had staff and student pastors and, and people saying, well, man, that's not cool, man. We got kids that really have been ministered to by him. We got kids that have read, and I know there's some bad stuff in there, but they got, and, and so um, oftentimes the false teaching and the error that we need to expose is going to come from within the church, and that's where we got to not shrink back. 
You're going to not shrink back. Now, in just a minute, he's going to give us some instruction and another imperative that will help us sort of put this in context because we don't want to be like running around with a little, you know, with, with our hoods and spears like on a witch hunt. Like it's, not, it's not that my ministry is to be devoted to like sniffing out false teachers and exposing that. Um, but I do need to be ready to expose error. So from within the church and then from the world. Like, for instance, television programming should not be instructing our students on what sex is supposed to be. Like, you know, this one's obvious. It's like, okay, the world is teaching them sex. The world is teaching them marriage. The world is teaching them philosophy. And so we need to expose the error that comes from the world's wisdom, the world's teaching. And so we expose false teaching. Second imperative is also in verse 6. He says, be trained in scripture and doctrine. Be trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine. So, so the words of faith would be scripture. Doctrine would be the belief that we derive from scripture. So for us, we want to think biblically. So we want to teach students to think biblically. So when we're teaching them the Bible, we're not just teaching them moral lessons. And, you know, like, like, like I don't want to sit down with a group of students and say, um, for, for instance, I don't want to sit down with a group of students and do the, the loaves and the fish and make the big point of the sermon that you should share. I don't want to do that. Should you share? Yes, we should share. The world will teach a kid they need to share. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. My, my daughter Kilby is reading Mere Christianity, so we've been talking through it. It's one of my favorite books. We've been talking through it, and, and I love the illustration he uses about the orange, like, you should share your orange with me. Wow, I feel entitled. No, I just feel like morally you should, I'm your fellow man. You should give from me out of your goodness. You know, like the world will teach that. Like, like that's, a, that's like the moral law that's written on a man's heart. The fish and loaves is not about sharing. It's about Jesus calling people to repent and get saved, right? So, so we want to make sure that we're trained in Scripture. We then train them in Scripture and teach them how to believe what they believe about everything from Scripture. It's called a Christian worldview on one hand. So the way they view the world, but then it's also called doctrinal foundation in terms of how they view God, how they view Scripture. So, so i got to be trained in that, in Scripture and doctrine, if, if I'm going to teach it, right? i got to be trained in it if I'm ever going to teach it. And so he says we're to be... I, I love uh, some of the other uh, and older translations. Instead of using the word trained, they use the word nourished. And I really like that, to be nourished in the Scripture. Um, is so important for, for us as leaders. Third imperative that he gives to Timothy, third, third word of instruction, avoid worldly myths and fables. Avoid worldly myths and fables. I think he's referencing back to those first five verses where there's some kind of goofy teaching that uh, you'd see this a lot in the New Testament where they're, remember that primarily their scripture was Old Testament. And so these, these cities like Ephesus, Colossae, uh, Corinth, they were very uh, spiritual, religious cities, and so the church was being influenced. And you had a lot of new believers and, and, and a lot of new Gentile believers who didn't have an Old Testament knowledge of Scripture. And so they're kind of, as young believers, they didn't have a, like, like, you know, it wasn't like they were getting saved and baptized, and then on Baptism Sunday, they were getting, like, the token Bible that the church would give them. There was no New, new Testament Scripture, other than some of the, the letters that were circulating from some of these apostles. And so... It was real critical that, the, that Timothy, as he's teaching the church in Ephesus, he's teaching the Scripture, and he's not getting caught up in, like, worldly fables. And it's almost like Paul's saying, listen, don't, like, <laughs> avoid those things. Like, don't get sucked into those conversations. 
Don't, and this kind of goes back to the first point of exposing false teaching. We expose it, but we don't get bogged down in it. Now shine a light on it. Like as a teacher, a small group leader, a discipler, a mentor, a mom, a dad, I need to shine the light of the gospel, to shine the light of scripture, which that second, that second imperative is talking about. Scripture, doctrine, shine the light on, onto the other things of, of, of this world that are being taught or being spun. And then let students under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the Word of God, recognize that which is false and silly. And it's, it's interesting because the wording that he uses, this is where, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the King James Bible, it uses old wives' fables. And you, if you, you've maybe heard the phrase old wives' tales. You ever heard that? And it's literally, it's almost comical. It's like uh, the idea is the kind of things that old women would sit around and gossip about and conjure up. I'll never forget... Uh, Sean and Bethany Clark were, Sean's our, our missions director here, and uh, sitting in a woman's house right after, uh, I think it was right after Obama got elected in 2008. Sean, you in here? He just stepped out. I saw him back there a while ago. Okay, I think, let me make sure I get this story right, but he's sitting, he's talking to one of these older ladies that we've done some work for, and she's probably in her 80s, and she, by the end of the conversation, she has is, she is enlightened Sean to know that Ever since the two airplanes crashed into the World Trade Center in Atlanta, that Obama's been preparing to become the Antichrist. So that was the conversation. So Sean's like, ah. well, so should he engage her in that debate at that point? And he's like, no, like, don't, like, maybe circle back around in another conversation. Hey, you said something the other day that really disturbed me. But the idea is, we like there's there's work to be done, and there's like like I'll never forget I was I met this guy. You should always be suspect when you're selling a firearm out of the trunk of your car in a truck stop parking lot. Okay, so that's the that's that's the setting of this story. <laughs> but what we did was we met. There's this like there's this like marketplace in Asheville. If you've ever been to Asheville, it's like Hippie Central. And there's this like whole food, natural herb place. And I was like, let's meet there and do this gun trade. And the guy's like, I love it. And so we meet, like we're right outside of this like hippie food store. And this guy shows up. And it's, by the way, this is perfectly legal to sell a gun out of the trunk of your car. There's nothing illegal about it, okay? So like, people are like, can you do that? Yes, you can do that. It's perfectly, I'm like I'm not a lawbreaker on purpose ever. And so, so I'm, we're standing out there. I mean, literally, if the police pull up, it's no problem. Like I've got this, this. Um, gun that I'm selling this guy, and I'd put it in the classifieds in the paper. And so this guy comes pulling up, and he gets out, and he looks just like a skinny version of Dog the Bounty Hunter. And I was like, yes, this is going to be awesome. I start talking to this guy. He said, where do you live? I said, I live over in Andrews. He said, that's where the moon-eyed people live. Well, I grew up knowing about the moon-eyed people. The moon-eyed people come from folklore. There's a lot of folklore in the southern Appalachian region. The moon-eyed people were believed to have been descended from this Welsh prince that left Wales in like the 11th century, came up through Mobile, Alabama, like which wasn't Mobile then, and they moved up and they settled in the southern Appalachian region. And they were a real small race of people. And they were called moon-eyed because the, their skin was real pale and they, their eyes couldn't stand to, to be out in daylight, so they were nocturnal. And they're supposed to be like leprechaun size. And it's like this crazy. Well, I grew up, we grew up telling ghost stories about that around the campfire. When I was in sixth grade, I knew that wasn't true. This guy believes it. Starts telling me stories about the moon-eyed people. And I'm standing in the, and, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm in the, I'm, 
I'm trying, I want to sell this gun and leave. I want to talk about the moon-eyed people. But have you ever been in a situation with a group of students where you're, like, this is so practical for student ministry. Have you ever been leading a small group and all of a sudden a kid says, what about the Loch Ness Monster? What about UFOs? What about aliens? You know what I say? What about them? We're not talking about that. I don't have time for that. That is foolishness. That is silly. I don't, no, we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about scripture. We're going to talk about why you should believe what you believe and where it comes from. So we don't get caught up. We have to stay the course and not get sucked into. You'll see Paul warn Timothy and Titus about this several times. At one point he says, avoid foolish controversy and stay stay the course, stay the task. Um, so I, I think another, another way to think about this is my responsibility as a, as a, a ministry leader, a discipler, a mentor, a pastor, a student pastor is to bring clarity to the scripture. I don't, I don't need to bring ambiguity to the Christian life. And when I'm, when I'm perpetuating, you know, conversations about foolishness and foolish things, I'm not bringing clarity. I'm just confusing and, and kind of like, I don't want to do, and, oh, and maybe I'm not confusing people, but I might be distracting We'll come into a small group gathering where we've just broken the bread of life and read from the scripture and, 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 and handled the word of God. And then we go into that small group and we, get, we start talking about things that don't matter. If nothing else, it's a distraction. So we want to stay the course, stay focused. Number four, train and, and discipline yourself for personal godliness. In verses seven and eight, he says, he says uh, um, that bodily training is of some value. And he also says we need, we need to train ourselves for godliness. And so I, I think a lot of times people will downplay the, the, the physical side of discipline in our lives. But it, it's not that he's saying physical discipline doesn't matter. It's not that he's saying eat what you want, sleep all day, you know, whatever. Like, like he's saying discipline plays a role in the life of a believer. But it has, it has momentary earthly value, particularly in the context of what he's saying is you need to be respectable and respected. And so you need to live a, a disciplined life. But then he's saying the greater, the greater pursuit in our lives needs to be a pursuit of godliness. So we, we are disciplined in, in the physical circle of our lives, but we're disciplined in the spiritual pursuit of godliness. That's, that's the bigger thing. So it's, it's something that we have to strive toward. It's something that we have to pursue. Um, it's, it's, it's not like... Uh, I think it's important to know, it's not like the moment that you say yes to ministry, all of a sudden you're like endowed with the special gift of godliness. Like the, when you say yes to ministry, all of a sudden you got to, the, the work gets harder, if anything. And so I've got to pursue and train. I, the, the fact that he uses the word train, that is an athlete. I mean, you, you, know, you start unpacking commentaries or looking in lexicons and reading Greek stuff here, and, and what you're going to get is gymnasium, train, box, fight, wrestle. Like, it, this is an athletic term. This is, this is not something that's ambiguous. It's, he's using an illustrative word here to help us understand it's going to be hard. The pursuit of godliness is hard. It's not, it's not something that, that comes easy. Number five, the fifth imperative comes from verse 10. Work hard. Work hard always. For to this end, we toil and strive. We want to work hard, but we also need to work smart. You've heard people say work hard, work smarter, not harder. No, we, it's both. In, in, in ministry, it's both. We need to work smart. If we work smart and we're efficient, and, and he gives us instruction on what it is to work smart because he says, 
to this end. You see that at the beginning of verse 10? To this end. To what end? Everything we've just talked about. Staying away from these things, exposing and shining the light on these things, focusing on Scripture and doctrine. To this end, we need to labor and pursue godliness in our own lives personally. So personally, I'm pursuing godliness uh, in, a, in a ministry context. I'm teaching the Scripture in a way that it's understandable. I'm doing the work and the labor of taking maybe this deep biblical truth and making it palatable and presentable to a 15-year-old. That takes work. You're going to have some 15-year-olds that you can talk heavy, weighty stuff with them. And in the same small group, you're going to have 15-year-olds that are like checked out. And you've got to really make sure that you can present that in a way that they get it. And so there's this, there's this need for hard work. It's not like you guys know you cannot, like if you're leading a small group or you're teaching or you're preaching, you cannot show up a couple hours early on Wednesday and expect to feed God's sheep with a with a, a devotional that you throw together sitting in your car listening to fish one oh whatever the christian radio thing right it's not gonna work you gotta do the hard work do the hard task to this end we toil and strive i'm getting ahead of myself that's really the next imperative so um so so to this end we toil and strive with clear purpose and direction and the work of a leader we shouldn't be seen as lazy we have to labor I, so many of you guys have worked either bivocationally or as volunteers, and or you do that now. Maybe you lead a small group. You're not paid to work in student ministry. When I was talking to a, a student pastor the last week of summer camp, and he had been coming here for like five years, and I'd seen him at a, a couple of pastors' conferences where we had set up a, a snowboard booth. I'd seen this guy. Oh, and then all of a sudden, he Zach and I are having a conversation with him, and we realized this guy works for free. Not volunteer for free. I said, man, I've seen you at every conference, we, conference we've been to in, in this part of the country. And, and you've been at camp every time, uh, you know, or for the last five summers, you've been at all. Like, what do you do? I drive a truck. Like, when do you drive a truck? Well, I start at my route. At, I get up at, at 430, and I'm driving the truck by 530, and I drive, and I get off about 430 or 5. And then I go to the church three nights a week, and I'm there all day Sunday. And I'm, do they pay you anything? Yeah, they pay me. How long have they been paying you? Three months. Five years, and now after five years, they're paying him a small part-time stipend. That's the world that a lot of student ministry people live in. A lot of you, that's the world you lived in at some point. And so if you're, like, if you're in a situation where you're leading a small group and there's days where you think, man, I'm so exhausted. I, like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, like, God's called you to this. He's called you to this. And he says to Timothy in the text, you have to do this with authority. And that authority comes from the calling. And then we have to work with the hope we have set uh, he, in the second half of the verse. It's, so we, we, we work smarter knowing how to work to this end. And then we work towards a goal uh, or with at least with something in view. And that's where he says, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is important because it keeps our work in the proper context. Those days where you're exhausted or where you want to quit or you're busy and you're this and blah, 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 I don't know what to do. I'm at my wit's end. What, what are we doing this for? What is our hope set on? We believe this. We do this because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. We believe in a kingdom that is without end. And to that end, 
we aim. To this end, we labor and toil. And to that end, we aim with eyes set on something that is bigger and greater than this momentary affliction that maybe we're facing on this day or that. There's, I, I'll never forget, though, I was about 16 or 17 years old. I was on, on uh, my buddy's motorcycle, and I wrecked that thing and almost killed myself. I was, the Lord just put his hand on me, and I didn't die. It was a miracle. And I remember somebody telling me, you know, people who ride motorcycles, there's two kinds, the ones that have had a bad accident and the ones that will have one eventually. You know, it's like, it's, and in ministry, there are two types of people working in student ministry, people that have been through a very difficult, trying, squeezing, dark, hard season of life and those for whom that season is just around the corner. Like it comes with the territory. It comes with the territory. And so it's, it, it's important, but it is critical that we fix our eyes. You think of those words of Paul fixing his eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. The writer of Hebrews said, that's what I gaze towards. That's what we have to gaze towards in ministry. Well, not only we fall short in these instructions and commands, but we'll lose heart. We'll shrink back. We can't do that. Number six, teach with authority. Comes from verse 11. We know that Timothy is somewhat timid because at one point Paul says, God hadn't called you to be timid. God hadn't called you to meekness in that way. But he says in verse 11, command and teach these things. So we teach with authority. He, he says, command. There's like, there's, there's no magical thing that gets unlocked when you study that in the Greek. It's command. Like you teach with authority. Thus saith the Lord. I do not know how people on a Sunday morning, how a pastor could stand and read from some sermonette a little happy, unauthoritative. Y'all know what I'm saying? Y'all know where I'm going with this? I don't want to say anything I don't need to say. But there's a lot of, I believe it was... Uh, I don't remember who it was, one of the old uh, British pastors from the last few hundred years that, that refer. It may have been, uh, it may have been um, J.C. Ryle who referred to those preachers that tickled people's ears as velvet mouthed, soft mouths, just like gentle with these, like command. You know, in student ministry, when when a kid begins to, when the gospel begins to click in a kid's life, what do they want? They want instruction. They want authority in their lives. They want, they, they want someone to... I, I saw this just explode to light when we were living in a house in Uganda when we were, doing, when we were trying to get Juju and Mo out of the country. And we were living over there for about uh, 12 weeks. Uh, we, we were in the country. And for those 12 weeks, there were two or three, three other families that were, in the, were staying in a boarding house. And... And one of the things that everybody's freaked out about is how do you discipline these children? You know, we have guardianship, court issues, guardianship. I've got this kid. Don't have this kid adopted yet. How do you discipline these children? All the books say don't spank them, you know. And so that's like a big no-no. Don't you dare spank this child. You don't even know this kid yet, whatever. Mo is like 14 months old, which he was not a disciplinary issue. He's fighting for his life. He's anemic. He's parasitic. He's malnourished. He's But Juju about the third day of drinking Kool-Aid and eating meat, and she was like, like she, like she was a handful. So Little and I sat, man, we had long conversations and praying over this and laboring I mean, before the Lord. God, what do we do? She's defiant. She's, she's already figured out, I'm going to run the show around here. We brought her out of this just nasty cesspool of filth that she was living in. 
And she already is, is you know, position, positioning herself to be queen bee. And what happened was we watched a lady who was staying in the house that had been in country for about three weeks longer than us. We watched her try to negotiate with her two little boys who don't speak the same language. And we watched these boys just run all over. Like no respect was there. No respect was established. And, and uh, so, I, so we talked through it and Little said, we're going to have to begin to discipline these kids at least in principle the same way we discipline our three older ones. And that night, Little was uh, bathing Juju. I could hear in there, you know, it was, it, was, it was a big issue to get enough water in the tub to bathe. She's in there bathing her. And I heard her say, Juju, no. Juju, no. I heard her say about three times. And I heard Juju just splashing and yelling and making a commotion. And then I heard. <laughs> and it was like silence. Peeked around the corner like this. And Juju was going like this, looking at Little. She wasn't crying. The kid had been beat, burned, whipped. I mean, I know it didn't hurt her that bad. But she was like, and from that day forward, from that day forward, she craved that authority. Don't, don't listen to secular, the secular wisdom that says teenagers are rebellious. They don't want authority in their lives. They, listen, they, most kids that are in our ministries need a voice of authority. Have the courage to be that voice if you've said yes to the call in your life. And for, for, in, in the context of this passage, He's saying, I mean, he's saying this in the context of teaching and preaching the Scripture. So it's not a parental thing. It's a shepherding thing in terms of teachers, preachers, leaders, disciples. We cannot be timid. We must never be arrogant or condescending. It's not that I, like, like he's not saying to Timothy, command and teach because you got it all together. Remember, he's talking to a guy that's pretty timid. So, he's, so, so it's not that we stand and we preach or, or teach, thus saith me. It's thus saith the Lord. But we do so authoritatively because, as Paul will later say to Timothy, hey, don't forget your calling. You were called to this. You were called to this. We simply speak with the authority granted by the call of God. Number seven, verse 12, we live with integrity. We live with integrity. A more literal way of saying, uh, again, this, this, uh, in verse 12 where he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Maybe a more literal way of saying that would be, don't let them despise your youth. What he's saying here, I believe, is don't give them any ammo. You're, you're facing this, like, like you've got older people that think they're smarter, you know, and they're, they're, they're telling you what you're doing wrong, or they're telling you how you should steer the ship. Don't give them ammo to put in their guns to attack you with. So live, basically he's calling to a high level of integrity, a high level of accountability, saying live above board. But you, like when you said yes to this, you said, okay, I will live my life above board. I will not go to the movies that I don't want 14-year-olds to see me walking into. I will not carry a six-pack to my car from the convenience store because I know what message that's going to send to a 16-year-old. It's the culture we live in. Can I do without it? Yeah, I can do without it. It's fine. It'll be all right. No one, not one human in history ever died from not drinking beer. It's like, do we, do we believe enough that our influence on these kids matters to the point that we will live in such a way that our integrity is intact at every turn? And so then, 
we're not giving people ammunition to say, well, I saw him doing this and he was over there. Is that, uh, is it saying legalism? Is Paul telling Timothy to live legalistically? No, man, he wrote the whole letter to the Galatians about legalism. Like, don't you dare live to please man with his rules and laws. He's saying live above reproach. In fact, the alcohol thing is probably not even that good of an example because he tells him to drink wine later on. You remember that? Just take some wine for your stomach. It's a, it's, a, it's a point of integrity. He's saying your life should be lived in such a way. And he breaks this down. He says, set the believers in an example in speech and in conduct in love, faith, and purity. Speech and conduct would refer to the way that I act and speak. The way that I teach or lead a small group or one-on-one with a student should mesh with the way that I act and speak in every other avenue of my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take a different tone. Like, you know, I'm a preacher. So when I preach, there's times, especially, you know, when I'm preaching, like the students, I'll usually fire that up. I'm not going to have that same conversation one-on-one with a kid, right? There, there's, maybe the tone is going to change. But there's consistency in content, consistency in message, and then the way that I act reflects the way that I speak and vice versa. So he's saying in, in terms of uh, how you act and how you talk in speech and conduct, um, but then he's also saying in love, faith, and purity, and that would be in, in the way that you minister, the way that you minister. It's not enough to speak and act like a leader. I need to minister. Man, good leaders care about people. Good leaders have broken hearts over the broken hearts of the people they're leading. Like, like when I'm on my face in prayer over a situation or circumstance, I feel the weight of that. Like yet I ache over the sin of the people that are in my care. The person that I'm discipling or mentoring, that young person that I care about, I'm trying to help see God's big plan and purpose for their life. Number eight, center your ministry on the centrality of Scripture. If you're going to teach, if you're going to preach, if you're going to even share a devotional, prepare, prepare, prepare. Prepare until that text has beaten you in the ground and until the Spirit of God has lifted you up again and that text has driven you back down on the ground and the Spirit of God has lifted you back up again. It is it is, not, it is no small thing to prepare to open the Word of God and teach a student, even if it's one-on-one in a discipleship setting. It's so important that we understand this. The idea of reading Scripture aloud in verse uh, 13 is rooted in Old Testament worship. And I need to be a part, I mean, that should be a part of uh, our worship services. One of the things that, that should be valuable. I've always thought it would be so cool. I don't know how to do this at Snowbird. I always thought it would be so cool. If, you know, kids will raise their hands when we're singing. I've always thought it would be so awesome if kids would raise their hands when we read the scripture. I'll do that a lot of times when I'm in my own, just a lot of times I won't raise my hands during music, but when the word of God is is being read, it's just like, this is worship. The reading of scripture is part of the worship service. It's so important. Um, And, and, and I just, something that I thought I would, I would just say that I've, we have found to be so important and, and valuable here in this ministry but then also in my life personally is is so good is read i don't know if you some of you probably do this i'll read the bible out loud in my own quiet time like i i, I my quiet time's in a quiet place it's i'm isolated i'm today i went up the mountain to swow fast which if you've ever been up there I mean, you, like if you really feel froggy and you want to go up there in the morning it's an amazing place to watch the sun come up it is unbelievable up there and i said there's a little bench up there and i sit up there and i read out loud the Psalms, the Proverbs, this text, it's just, there's, there's just kind of this booming 
confidence that comes, I think, when I'm reading the scripture out loud. And so I like that. So cool. Um, so so the, the scripture, the reading of scripture and the handling of scripture should be central to the worship service, the weekly event. It should be central to the weekly event. It's fine if kids don't come out of it saying, man, what I really learned tonight came from the message. If they come out and say that song ministered to me or that skip meant a lot to me or that, that trust the word of God to do its work. But also do your work in preparing. MacArthur says this. I read this from John MacArthur. It was actually in a sermon manuscript. Um, but the greats of the past understood their whole life was given comprehensively to the word of God. Joseph Parker said, if I talk all week, I cannot preach on Sunday. That is all. If I attend committee meetings, immerse myself in politics, my strength would have been consumed there. That is all. About my ministry, there is no mystery. There is no mystery. People have asked me, young people through the years, what's the secret to great preaching? Simple answer, keep your rear end in the chair until you finish the work. Come out only when you have something to say. Make sure when it's time to say something, you have something well prepared to say. Our labor is clearly identified. First Timothy 5, double honor to those elders who labor in preaching and teaching. This is where you can be a, a huge assistance to your student pastor. If you're a small group leader, Sunday school teacher, something like that, or your pastor, if you're a lay leader in the church, an elder, a deacon, do whatever work you can do so that he can guard massive chunks of time to prepare to preach the Word of God. That's critical. It's critical to the health and growth of any ministry. It's so important. Number nine, use your gifts. Verse 14, use your gifts. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you. God calls us and he equips us. We don't have the excuse of not being good at this or not knowing what we're doing there. Or I haven't been to seminary or I didn't go to Bible college or I have no formal training or I blah, blah, blah. Like, what, excuses, no place for them. No, places for, no, no place for excuses. Timothy had been commissioned to this task just because it got difficult and he felt like he was in over his head. Didn't give him an excuse to back down or be timid. Timidity and humility are not the same thing. Timidity and humility are not the same thing. He's got to use the gift God's given him. It's not like, you guys remember uh, the parable where Jesus talks about, like the, the parable of the, the stewards and stewardship and giftings. And they're like the one guy, the one guy, he saved it, man. He still had his gift when the, when the guy returned, right? Remember that? And what happened to that guy? He went to hell. Remember that? He was so proud that he had preserved what he had been given. It's perfect. He preserved it. Yeah, but you didn't do anything with it. Like God's called, you have to assume that if God's called you, put the burning desire in, in your heart to do what you're doing. Don't, like, don't speak and think negatively along the lines of, I don't really offer anything here. I'm not really equipped. Like just read the Bible. How many people did God ever call because like God was like, man, I need that dude. He got it together. She, that's my girl right there. I need her. Mary Magdalene, I need somebody that's been possessed with demons and, and prostituted herself. That's what I need in my ministry. No, like not ever. Did Jesus like, I need, like the, the hymn is not Jesus singing to us, I need thee every hour. If, if student ministry is going to be effective, I need thee every hour. Jesus is not like softly and tenderly pleading you to be good at what you do. He's just calling us to faithfulness. So use the gifts you've been given. Be passionate. Number 10, be passionate. 
Students can read us. They will see through fakeness and boredom. If you're bored with the task in front of you, it will show. We've got to be all in. Ministry is not something we sort of hobby ourselves at. Even for a volunteer worker, it's a high calling. I need to live out what I'm teaching, and that cannot be done partway. That cannot be done partway. Be passionate. Think about, there's, uh, there's uh, some guys that Tuck and I like to watch on uh, YouTube, these guys that make their own hunting videos, and uh, they film their own stuff, and it's all on public land, and none of it's guided. It's all, uh, and, and, I've, and, 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 we, and they hunt in Wyoming and Alaska and over here and over there, and how do they afford it, and when do they do it? I saw a, a thing where they explained kind of their, their, the way that they fund it in their plan, and it's like they work eight months a year, 14 hours a day and make a bunch of money and then take four months off and travel around and spend that money. You know what? To me, it's a hobby. It's not an obsession. It's not a passion. It's just not. It's, it's fun. I enjoy doing it. And I think I'll never be what those guys are. As much as I like to shoot my bow, as much as I like to kill big animals, I'll never, I'll never do that because I'm not committed to, to putting that kind of investment in time and money and resources, right? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to become that guy. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just not. So when we think about ministry, it should be said of us, they live their lives with everything else outside of family, outside of family. That's, that's priority. That's for another conversation tomorrow. We're going to talk about that. Some of the, some of the sessions will be on that topic. But in the ministry context, I've got to give myself to this, man. This is not like a hobby for me. It's not like an accessory. I'm not an accessory to the work at the church. Like, I've got to be all in. It's going to show. Number 11, verse 16, I need to grow. I need to grow. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. I need to be growing. I've got to focus on personal growth in my life. This is where I love, you know, one of my favorite quotes. Our staff here knows this is one of my favorite quotes from uh, McShane, the Scottish pastor. The greatest need my people have of me is my personal holiness. The greatest need my people have of me is my personal holiness. I need to grow. It's not like, you know, I don't stop growing, man. I don't. You ever hear they say old, they say the reason old men have big, real big ears is because a man's ears keep growing until he dies. Do you ever hear that? Have you heard that? Old, old, if you ever see an older man and have these big old ears, you know, little cute old man, big old ears. Those ears are like, uh uh-uh, uh, I ain't stopping, man. I'm going the distance. Like, <laughs> Like, as a Christian, I feel like so many people, they do so well, and they just sit down. They're tired. They just sit. They just stop growing. They just stop growing. I want to grow till the end, grow through the end. That brings us to the 12th one uh, in the final imperative from the text, and that's in verse 16 where he says, persist in this. So I want to grow till the end, and the counter, or like the, the other side of that is, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. You can call yourself to this. Don't quit. Persist. Persevere. Endure to the end. Endure to the end. So I want to take all this, condense it down. I said it would be an hour in this lecture, and we are going to be less than an hour. We're going to be 55 minutes by the time I'm at 53 minutes, I bet. Condense this down. So there's, there's 12 imperatives, and here's how he condenses them. In verse 6, and he condenses them in such a way. Keep this in mind. Listen, okay. In context of what he's writing, 
these imperatives are to, are to be countermeasures over against the culture and the society that he's ministering in. It's, these are countermeasures against cultural error and Christian apostasy. Let me tell you what's going on in America today. Cultural error, Christian apostasy. Like what, we, are, we are messed up when 85% of Americans say that they believe in God or whatever. You know, like, what, who, who, whatever poll you read. But I mean, it's a bunch of people. A bunch of people say, I believe in God. Yeah, and a bunch more will say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And a bunch more will say, yeah, I support same-sex, this, that. What, like, like what you find is that the cultural tide is what's steering people's worldview. It's not rooted doctrinal stability. And so, so we take all these imperatives that God's given to Timothy through Paul, and we apply them to our own lives, and we can condense them down into about five, you know, take the 12, con- condense them into about five, and they become countermeasures against cultural error and Christian apostasy, apostasy. The first one is this, live out the message you teach. Live out the message you teach. The good minister is no theorizer. He teaches the apostolic doctrine which he has made his own, both as nourishment by which to live, in verse 6, and as standard by which to judge himself. Nourishment for life and standard of judgment. Nourishment for life and standard of judgment. That's the word of God. That's the message. The message we teach has first been nourishment for life for me and a standard of judgment. Number two, avoid superstitions and fads. That's verse 7. Our, listen, our faith and ministry is rooted in history, y'all. Our faith, our ministry is rooted in the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. That's what it's rooted in. We minister because the tomb is empty and Jesus ain't still standing on the Mount of Olives going up, up. No, like he rose from the dead, but that only started it, man. That's when the kingdom launched. He was ascend, he ascended and then exalted, right? He's, he's, he's ascended and exalted. And so that's, our ministry is rooted in the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. That's where we minister from. I don't, I don't, I don't need to get swept away in foolishness. But okay, so remember this again. While we need to expose error, the best defense is an attack offensively. I don't need to focus on false teaching all the time. I don't need, like, like some guys really, really geek out over this. And they will come in and, and constantly they want to point out this guy said this. Or they're constantly attacking the prosperity gospel. Or Creflo's wanting a $60 million jet. Or this or that. You know, it's like, let's expose, expose, expose. Now, like, we don't need to deal with that. Expose error, but focus primarily our ministries around the Word of God. Around the Word of God. That'll expose the bad stuff. It's like the, it's like the football coach that says, we're going to run it up the middle every play. And we'll tell the defense that's what we're doing. But if we do it right, it doesn't matter if they know it's coming. We'll get five yards every play. And we'll win the ballgame. Doesn't matter what your, you know, like, like the, 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 the like creativity of your plan. If you're not executing biblical teaching from the Word of God, it's not going to matter. Number three. Verses 8 through 10, we take all of those and we condense them into this one. Self-training. Self-training. Maybe you hadn't been to seminary. Maybe you've never been to college. Maybe you didn't even go to community college. Maybe you got a GED. Train yourself in the Scriptures daily. Train yourself in the Scriptures daily and let the Spirit of God lead you through that. And sit under good discipleship and read good books. 
The minister's own spiritual life does not come automatically. It is constant training, personal holiness. Godliness must be worked for, fought for, maintained constantly. A season of formal training is great, and if you are afforded that opportunity, that could be one of the greatest opportunities you have. But regardless, even if you have that season of three or four or five years of Bible college, seminary, whatever, what I want to do is live a lifetime of scriptural study. Personal, physical discipline matters. Personal, physical discipline matters. Number four, be and set an example. Verses 11 and 12. The most credible teaching can be quickly rejected if the minister is a hypocrite in his own life. Y'all know that, I know that. Think of the devastation caused when a man who's a lead pastor falls into personal sin. It's devastating to people. Devastating. And number five, you take verses 13 through 16 and condense them into this one. Effective spiritual ministry needs to just be our constant goal in terms of how we're do- we, need to, we need to strive to be effective. We want to be effective. We want to be effective spiritually. And that's preparation. That's public reading. That's in verse 13 where he says uh, exhortation is, is critical. In verse 13 he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of stri- Scripture, to exhortation. Exhort- exhortation will be another word for preaching a lot of times in Scripture, which implies believers. Exhortation is done to, we don't exhort, in Scripture typically exhortation is targeted at believers. Okay, now th- one, one principle here in this closing point that I think is real important. Exhortation is a target believers. Evangelism is a target unbelievers. Two, two mistakes that I hear a lot of young student pastors make in conversation, and here's the two mistakes. One guy says this, man, you know, we just don't have the numbers. Our pastor's putting a lot of pressure on us to have more numbers. I got people saying, hey, man, you only got 40. We, we need to have 80. The last, the last guy had 80. You should have 100. Man, I'm, you know, I'm building a strong discipleship ministry. I want to disciple kids. I'm focused on discipleship. And, he's, and, and that guy's saying, I don't care if we don't grow in number. Well, that's good. We need to build a, a core group of disciples. We also need to reach lost people. And we need to build and cultivate a ministry that sees classmates, teammates, people in the community as needing Jesus. And we want to cultivate that in our students. The other mistake I hear a lot of guys, I'll never forget having this conversation with this guy where he said, man, you know, our ministry, man, we got kids smoking pot in the the parking lot at church. And we got kids, man, like they're being arrested. And it's like, he's almost like bragging about how rough the kids are that they got coming to church. And I'm talking to this guy and then realize, you know, he's not really being effective because the ones that are smoking pot aren't coming into the church. They just know there's cute girls there and they're all hanging out there but they're not really engaging them. And, and this guy's idea is, yeah, but we're, you know, they're here. It's better that they're here smoking pot than at, at their grandma's basement smoking pot. I don't know. I don't know. The, and the danger there is that we say, we don't, I'm not a discipler. We want to reach potheads and we want to reach kids that need Jesus. It's not either or, it's both and. We need to reach lost students and we need to disciple the ones that God's given us. And so Paul's outlining that for Timothy where he's saying, exhort exhort, which is to preach or teach. It implies believers. Then also teach, which is explaining the scripture. Can we do that to unbelievers? Yeah. Can we do that to believers? Yeah. There should be an element in our teaching that if a lost kid's sitting there, he's going to connect with the gospel. He's going to at least hear the gospel. He may not connect with it. 
you're going to hear the gospel, be exposed to the gospel. But where a kid that's sitting there that you've had in your student ministry for five years that's growing and leading is going to be able to receive the word of God and hear that. And then also, of course, that's where we implement small group leaders, discipleship groups, and things like that. So important. This is critical to the health, survival, personal holiness, and perseverance for me and for those that I lead. Countermeasures outlined in those imperatives, if we get this right, I think we'll have effective ministry. Because Timothy had effective ministry in Ephesus. Effective. In fact, the last session tomorrow, we're going to look at Paul's last words to Timothy. His last words to Timothy. And we see in the second letter that he writes him that he, so much of this was implemented and it was effective. God used it. And so we can learn a lot from that. All right? Let me uh, take a moment and close us in prayer. Lord, I love you and I love your word and I'm thankful that we do not have to be but so creative. We need to be students of your word and, and, and we need to labor over the text and we need to be able to give an answer to those that we minister to when they do have questions, but we need to be ready to build them up and, and, and strengthen them and grow them up in the faith. And, and we need to be people who live lives of conviction and personal holiness and in pursuit of your word and worship. So please help us to be the leaders that you want us to be. Help us to instruct in the way that you want us to instruct. And I pray that our fellowship tonight, even though it's late, I know a lot of gals and, and gals sit up and talk and enjoy just a short time of fellowship here. God, thank you for this small, short break to, to sharpen one another. I pray that our fellowship would honor you and that, that lessons would be shared and experiences would be shared and that we would all leave more equipped and edified to do the work that you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.